Hey everyone, Randy Brown here. Just returned from a conference in Los Angeles, the fifth annual martial arts studies conference. Well, this conference was a gathering of academics, scholars that are also martial artists, people who are interested in the history, culture, things surrounding martial arts. Uh, it's a really cool event. I highly recommend it to anyone if you have an interest in the background of your martial arts or other martial arts. While I was there, I gave a talk on Qing Dynasty and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was more specifically about what we can learn about the martial arts in the Qing Dynasty from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Today, I'm going to share this with you, the talk that I gave and the slides so that you can see uh, for yourself some of these really cool connections. All right, let's get started. What can Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu teach us about Qing Dynasty martial arts? So quick background for those of you unfamiliar with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It originates in Japan, popular fighter by the name of Maeda. So he has a bunch of challenge matches, he gets pretty good, travels to Brazil, and he gets stuck there. Can't get home. So he starts teaching uh, his judo and jiu-jitsu to a family that no one's ever heard of before, the Gracies. What is unique about Brazilian jiu-jitsu is never before in the history of mankind have we been able to watch a martial art go global. Not only do we get to watch this happen, we get to watch it evolve. Because the art that we have now is quite different than where it started from. It has grown. It has evolved. A couple of key points. Like the Gracies took this and by all accounts blended it with some catch wrestling techniques. And they perfected their stuff and challenged other schools, other fighters. And they were winning in Brazil. So they came to the United States and set up an arena for a place to test their martial arts and challenge more people. And they won. They won a lot. They dominated. They survived in that position long enough for everyone to take notice and to cement their place in history. Now, inside Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, there are some subsets, which is what I want to start with. We have families. For example, we have the Gracies. Nowadays, they're branding their own jiu-jitsu, so they call it Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. We have traits. Cardo de la Riva developed a hooking technique with his legs to stop bigger, stronger fighters. He would sweep them, submit them, and win competitions. He did this enough that other people started to pay attention and try to figure out what he was doing and copy it. Eventually, enough people did that that he became famous. They even named the move after him, cementing him in history. Another subset we have are animals, insects, and reptiles. So we have spiders, we have turtles, we have butterflies, we have mantis. I really need to get on that one. Haven't tried that yet. But uh, Mantis Guard, got to try it out. It's on my list. Each of these is 
is significant in and of themselves, but none of these animal styles or insects or reptiles become styles in their own right. But they did in China. So let's take a look at the Qing Dynasty and see what we find. The Qing Dynasty begins in 1636 to 1730. That's when they overthrow the Ming. It ends pretty much in 1911. And that's when the Republican era comes in. During the Qing Dynasty, just like in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, we have families. Some of the famous families we have would be the Chen family, the Yang family, the Wu family. These are some of the more popular in the north. We have military arts like Xing Yi Chuen. We have security services, gangs, hired thugs. We have traits in the Qing dynasty, just like we find in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with Ricardo de la Riva developing a trait that he uses. We have Cotton Fist Yang. Cannon Fist Chen, Iron Fist Liang, Lightning Hands Lee. I don't think that Lightning Hands Lee was shooting bolts of electricity out of his fingertips like Emperor Palpatine in Return of the Jedi. We have Two Hooks Lee. We have Eagle Claw Lao. Now this is, this is an interesting one because Eagle Claw shows up in the Ming Dynasty in Chi Chi Guang's manual. He mentions it in 1560, but he mentions it as a trait and it disappears 300 years. I'll get back to that in a second, but bear with me. Now, all of these things I mentioned are more caricatures of their founders. They're attributes that set them apart from other fighters. They're not styles, but then they become styles. So how do we go from traits to styles? We have uh, Eagle Claw, which is really someone with unbreakable grips. We could take that away. We have Cotton Fist, Iron Needle Inside Cotton, Fly Like a Butterfly, Sting Like a Bee. Everybody's familiar with that phrase from Muhammad Ali, right? Very similar to the Iron Needle Inside Cotton. We have Cannon Fist. Probably a power puncher, a knockout artist. Iron Fist knocked someone out and didn't break his hand doing so. Lightning Hands, again, fast hands, not shooting lightning. And then two hooks, clinch fighter. These traits evolve into totems. We end up with, in the late Qing Dynasty, an Eagle Claw style. A praying mantis boxing, white crane, tiger claw, and monkey boxing. But monkey boxing, this was around in the Ming Dynasty as well, and probably earlier than 1560. However, Chi Ji Guang mentions that legitimately as, or specifically as, monkey boxing, not an attribute, more of a style. When he talked about eagle claw, though, that one was a trait. And Peter Lorge mentions this in a talk that he gave at Cardiff University a few years ago. He shows the translation as being Eagle Claw Wang. So Eagle Claw Wang, that's, well, that guy's got an attribute. We nicknamed him Eagle Claw. Why? Probably because he has really strong fingers that dig into your skin. 
So it makes sense that there's more than one person that can be called Eagle Claw. And we have this 300-year gap between Eagle Claw Wang and when the Eagle Claw style shows up. Now, what does Eagle Claw, Praying Mantis, White Crane, and Tiger Claw, what do they all have in common? They all have a murky past and untraceable roots. What do I mean by that? Well, when you trace their histories back from present day, you can find actual practitioners, fighters, teachers. And then in the 1800s, it's a hard stop. It hits this ethereal wall in the historical records. And prior to that, they all credit their styles to a monk, a deity, a, tr a temple, a fictional hero, or a famous general. This is a byproduct of the Republican era in the early 1900s. We can find evidence of this from uh, Dr. Ben Judkins. He translated some of Xi'an uh, Kairen, the author of a serialized column in the newspaper that became famous throughout China. And these stories that he was telling in the newspaper actually laid the framework for the Hong Kong movie plot lines later, which ironically... Xiang was complaining about other teachers in the 1920s adding revisionist history to their martial arts to try to make them stand out. There was so much competition in the South, for example, between teachers that they had to start trying to make stuff up. Hey, my style came from Buddha. Hey, my style came from Shaolin Temple. Hey, my style came from some famous general in order to get practitioners to study with them. So why did these uh, styles exist? Why, why did they show up? What happened that they became, these animals became styles, but they don't in BJJ? Here we could see a picture of Holly doing a spider guard on Carrie, and she's doing a sweep from spider guard more specifically. But we don't have a spider style in BJJ. We don't have a butterfly style. So let's look for some clues in what was going on in the Qing Dynasty. I would make a case for a common tongue. You can walk into any Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school around the world and be able to communicate. Even if you don't speak their, the same language, you can still communicate. Everyone knows what close guard is versus open guard. Everybody knows what a sweep is. They all know what a submission is. And they know what tapping out means. From there, you could build a communication platform. And I believe that China in the Qing Dynasty, before the Republican era, had the same. Dr. Green calls this a common vernacular. What do I have to prove this? Let's look at this slide. There's two pictures here. On the left, from the year 2000, I was doing a style known as Walam Praying Mantis. Now, this move was in a form, and I was completely clueless as to why it was, what it did. My teachers didn't know, no one knew what, it, what the application was. But it looks cool. On the right, 18 years later, mystery solved figure out what the move does. How? 
one of my students, Vincent, uh, travels to Mongolia to do Mongolian wrestling. While he's there, he meets a native wrestler, and this is one of the guy's signature moves. Comes back, and he's showing me what he learned while he was on his trip. Immediately recognized the move as something that I've done before. I did that move in eagle claw forms. I did it in mantis forms. I did it in long fist. We can also see other moves that do the same, and we can refer to Tong Zhong Yi's manual. This was published in 1935, but translated in 2005 by Tim Cartmel and printed by North Atlantic Books. Tong is an interesting cat. He is one of the last bastions of the three manly acts of Genghis Khan. He still practiced archery, horseback riding, and shuai jiao, or Chinese wrestling. These moves in Tong's manual, which is a shuai jiao wrestling manual, if you know what you're looking at, they're found in Eagle Claw, they're found in Mantis, they're found in Taiji. So I believe that Chinese boxing as a whole was a thing, just like judo is, jiu-jitsu is, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I think that there was a common pool of knowledge. Not everybody did the same techniques, obviously, but people recognized that guy does these punches, these kicks, or the, this series of throws are his arsenal. So when everybody's doing the same thing, what makes you stand out? Branding, marketing. You have to draw attention to yourself. Now, it's important to remember that prior to this branding phase, the 1850s, early 1900s, were chaos incarnate in China. There were epic levels of violence. You had catastrophes through and through, mass destruction, some caused by man-made, and some by natural causes. You can read the works of Douglas Wiley, Brian Kennedy. You can see them mention this. And I knew about it, but I didn't have any idea on the scale. That's not their fault because it wasn't the focus of their books to discuss those events in detail. When you start to dig into what was really going on, the surroundings were horrific. It was unbelievable. You're talking rebellions, famines, wars, drug addiction, droughts, floods. And I'm, I'm talking like within, I think the longest stretch between one of these major events was maybe seven years which you'll see in a minute when we go to the timeline. Now, this period was still when people were using their martial arts for combat. And then, post-Boxer Rebellion, we see a shift of martial arts for physical education. Here is a timeline that we built to show what was going on in the area. Now... We created this because Mantis Boxing has a pretty shady past. You can go back, like I said, to the 1800s and still find real people that you can prove were alive. Prior to that, horrible. Just falls apart. There's no actual evidence that it existed. It's all rumor and hyperbole. So I wanted to know if the people that we did have proof of existing were actually in the place that they were when they said they, they were and if they learned from the teachers that they claimed to have learned from. 
finding evidence or things about each of these individuals is difficult. We lay out events of the time and then overlay the date of birth and date of death of each of these practitioners, each of these mantis boxers. It was very educational and had some surprising outcomes that allowed us to form some pretty solid theories and solve some mysteries. Each of these teachers intersecting, not all of them, but some of them, intersecting their students and the student-teacher relationship being formed happened during a natural disaster. Pattern repeats itself. You have Yellow River floods. This is when Liang Shushang returns to Yantai. Many of his quote-unquote students were not even born yet. So Liang Shushang is third generation Mantis boxer, learned from Zhao Ju, who learned from Li Bingxiao. When he does intersect with his students, there's a severe drought heading into a massive famine. And this famine happens to cause about, the estimates are nine and a half to 13 million people died in five provinces in the north of China. This is around the Yellow River region horrific conditions. And this happens again a little later with Li Sanjian meeting Wang Rongsheng. And I think what's important here is for us to recognize that during times of extreme chaos like floods, famines, you probably are not teaching forms. And I don't think you're opening a martial arts school and teaching hobbyists now, if there's no farming going on, there's an argument to be made for people having more time on their hands. That's a possibility. However, what's significant with three of the te- or two of the teachers, Liang Shushang and Li Sanjin, both of them are in their 60s and 70s when they come across these students. And each of these students is already a significant, well-rounded, or experienced, I should say, fighter in their own right. When you're in your 60s and 70s, I don't think you're doing a lot of fighting yourself during a famine. What's significant about these two gentlemen is they were both Biaucher. Laurent Chercobrez he did an amazing paper called Merchants Brigands and the Biaoju. The Biaoju are security escort services started by the Dai family, which is where Xing Yi comes from. The Dai family used this to train their guards. A Biaoshur is an escort master. These are the guys that were responsible for teaching the guards and uh, running the caravans. They would have a crew with them. Here's two experienced Biaosher, well-renowned in their areas. People know their names. And these famines, floods are happening. Millions of people are dying. Crime is through the roof. It's not like it is today. You can't travel in between towns with any sort of valuables and expect that you're not going to get harassed by bandits. Security is something that we take for granted now, but not necessarily during this time. So if you are this famous fighter, but you're old, 
and you see the writing on the wall, you see these disasters about to happen or you're in the midst of it, you're not teaching for sport. You're not teaching for fun. What are you doing? You're circling the wagons. You're trying to figure out how am I going to protect my family, my assets? How are we going to stay fed? How are we going to survive? So what do you do? You go to the market where you meet other martial artists and fighters and you grab young 20-something boxers and you come to an agreement. You make an arrangement. They protect you and your family. You show them some of the stuff that you've learned in your lifetime. And as part of the trade, they get to claim you this famous Biauscher as their teacher. Each of the people in the generation following these guys gave up their prior teachers and they used these two as they, they made claim to these two. Why is that a big deal? For humans, names mean something. As an example, in modern time, let's say, now he doesn't coach, but let's say he did, Mike Tyson. Let's say Mike Tyson coached people. And you met somebody and they said, yeah, I learned from Mike Tyson. You would take a step back. You what? You learn from Mike Tyson? Whoa. Even if that guy doesn't look like they train with Mike Tyson, you have to stop and ask yourself, if they know half of what Tyson knows or can do, you need to give them a wide berth. That person's reputation gives you credit as their student. So when you're in your young 20s, this can mean a lot to you. But we're doing martial arts in this time period out of necessity, not necessarily a luxury, in my opinion. If we look here, we can see when the rebellion takes place and we move from Boxer Rebellion uh, time period in the late 1800s early to 1901, and we head into the Republican era 10 years later. This Boxer Rebellion had a significant effect on Chinese martial arts. It was a series of uprisings, yes, but it was uh, discontent towards Western powers encroaching on China, on religion, foreign religions taking over. There are some really good books on it. You can look at it in more detail. To my point, what I want to bring up is this, had, this fractured people's motivation for doing martial arts. They crumbled. After this, the Qing military was trying to westernize and use modern firearms, use modern military tactics after they had just been defeated by the Western powers yet again and humiliated. We see a shift in China from martial arts for combat to martial arts for physical education. As nationalism rises and China is trying to combat its appearance to the rest of the world, where they're being called the sick men of Asia due to opium addiction and people starving. So now the Chinese Qing dynasty and then the Republican government want to use martial arts to strengthen the populace. We see this by the creation of the Jingwu 
and the Nanjing Guoshu Institute. Both are using martial arts as a form of physical education. We fast forward to the communist era in the 1950s and we see the creation of a communist Wushu committee where they create Chinese martial arts forms to represent each of the major styles in the North and South. Some of them get generalized and lumped in, like Long Fist is kind of a, an amalgamation of a bunch of different styles in the North, something that just represents a lot of different arts. I think it's evidence that there were a lot of commonalities, so we can lump it in. They had a Southern Fist, they have Eagle Claw, Mantis, Xingyi, Taiji Chuan, Bagua, which I would argue had those styles not shown up in Jing Wu, they probably wouldn't have ended up on the Wushu radar because there's a lot of other styles that didn't make, a, make the cut and did not get represented independently. Jing Wu attracted these five tigers of the north where they pulled these uh, teachers down and part of the curriculum was you learn ten forms. Uh, hand forms, six hand forms, and then four of the primary weapons, saber, sword, spear, and staff. If you finish those 10 forms, you could then go on to specialize in one of the five others, like Xing Yi Chuan, Bagua, Taiji Chuan, Eagle Claw, Praying Mantis Boxing. The representative for Praying Mantis Boxing, Lo Guan Yu, taught in his lifetime, it's uh, estimated 82 forms. Now, if you're doing 82 forms, you're not fighting. So you can see that this is really a shift to doing forms just for the sake of forms, not the fighting application behind it. It speaks to this transition that we went through. Now, I'd say Mantis is probably one of the most egregious in the in this shift uh, the mass proliferation of forms from mantis boxing is huge and not all lines of mantis do this predominantly it's seven star that has the most form six harmony and eight step they have the least what happens next after the communist era is we end up with cultural industrialization of chinese martial arts with the hong kong movie scene now, the rest of the world is being introduced to Chinese martial arts through these movies. And that's what we come to believe is the actual art in and of itself, what becomes known as Kung Fu. These movies further cemented these animal systems as, or these animal caricatures as styles. They were already kind of cemented in place, if you will, with the shift because they were no longer being tested and lack of this active test bed caused these traits to become brands and to become distinct styles because now again people have to stand out well how do you stand out oh we do mantis boxing oh we do eagle claw boxing because something in their heritage was related to this but uh, now they're building a whole style around it. So let's bring it back to full circle. In BJJ, we see these animals be or insects be represented, but they get introduced 
as, oh yeah, that person's doing this technique. Let's call it that. Oh yeah, that's really working. And they dominate. They dominate in this worldwide global arena where they are tested in a crucible of fire. And if they work, they stick around and people copy it. And they copy it enough that it grows and grows and enough people start getting beaten by it that they try to figure out how to stop it. And once it gets defeated, it doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. It gets blended and rolled into the common pool of knowledge of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And some people still use it and they get better at it because now people are are defending against it and beating it. Or they use it as a platform to do other stuff. And they move in and out of it when it gets shut down. In Chinese martial arts, when it stopped being used as fighting, when people stopped doing it for real, it, it lost that test bed. And now these styles were allowed to exist independently as their own thing instead of being rolled back in. And ultimately... Nowadays, there because of that, Chinese martial arts are becoming an endangered species. These styles are going extinct because people can't use them in a real arena of combat like the UFC or one championship, pride. They, if they can't stand up, then they're going to get put down. Could this happen to BJJ? Could it happen again? Absolutely. If, for example, something happened to cause everyone to stop using Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the next generation was taught without any of the application. So they were just taught a series of moves on the ground, call it a form, and never shown how those moves work, the art will die. One generation. That's all it takes. And now it starts to be taught to the, the second and third and fourth generation as forms. Then you would start to see these styles appear in BJJ. Oh, those guys, they do spider style. And those guys, they over there, they, they use butterfly style. That, they use turtle style. I definitely think you would see this happen again. And you would see this rebranding to make people stand out if Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stopped being taught as a fighting art. Thanks for listening. It was an absolute honor to give this presentation in Los Angeles, and I hope you enjoyed it.